If you will, take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to begin our reading in chapter 23. I am going to back up into verse 44. Again, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23, will begin in verse 44. We're going to read all the way in to chapter 24 uh, through verse 12. Again, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning in verse 44. I would imagine that most of us have heard uh, someone say something like this, that all religions are equally true or they're equally valid. Uh, They may go on to say that all religions are equally useful or equally useless, uh, depending on if they are something of a open-minded, liberal, pluralist, or uh, some type of closed-minded, agnostic, or skeptic. But the reality is, and as we have sung this morning, and I was impressed by what we sang, that we confessed the great truth of the resurrected Savior. We confessed that which is true, that is namely that it conforms to the historical reality. As Peter wrote in 2 Peter, we do not follow cleverly invented fables. In other words, what we believe, where our hope is placed, that upon which our faith rests is not a legend, it is not a fable, it is true. And on this day, most particularly, we gather in view of the reality that those first witnesses, those first ladies that went to that tomb found the stone rolled away. They were able to go inside and see that indeed the tomb was empty and hear the confession, he is not here, he has risen. And so we do sing that we we serve a risen Savior. It is absolutely, absolutely true, and it is absolutely necessary if we're to have a hope beyond this world. Yes, indeed, there is something unique, something distinct. There is something that distinguishes us from every other religion, every other worldview, every other philosophy. That our God became a man, entered into everything it means to be a man. He came and succeeded where our first parent fell. He died in our place for us. And the bonus is this. We know all of that to be true because God the Father raised his son from the dead. And so let's look today at these factual accounts of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's begin reading. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw that what saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet ever been laid. And it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their heads to the ground, the men said to them, why? Do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told all these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your truth, for your grace that has enabled us to see so clearly and to believe so strongly on that through which you have saved us. We do indeed stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. We do wonder how he could love us. Sinners, justly and rightly condemned unclean. May we ever declare, may, we, may the praise be on our list. Oh, how marvelous. May we always proclaim that great truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Lord Jesus' final hours upon the cross. It is interesting that 
we find him in the grip of death, in, in, in the, the throes of his demise, not consumed with his own grief. Now, I find myself when I am hurt, when I'm feeling bad, even when I'm over busy, I will neglect everything and everybody to see to my own needs, to my own issues. But our Lord Jesus, in the moment of abandonment, in the moment of, of having sensed and felt and received the full wrath of God, is ready, as we saw last week, to hear the final plea of a fellow dying man. Now, that man wasn't an innocent man like Jesus. He was a guilty man. But by God's grace, he saw that the one hanging on the middle cross was distinctly different from him. I believe he saw a king, and he saw the kingdom that would soon follow him. And he made that great request of our dying Savior, Lord, remember me. And as we ended last week, and as I urged you, and I would still urge you in this fashion, that when we stand before him on that day, maybe the best thing that we could say would be this. The man on the middle cross said, I could come. And so let's look at the basis upon which that privilege has been granted, the death of the Lord Jesus, verses 44 through 49, that this cross is shrouded, indeed the world shrouded in darkness, both in the Bible and in uh, popular literature. You'll see oftentimes that darkness is a, a motif. It is a symbol of that which is evil is occurring. Uh, also within the Bible, you will find occasionally that it is the darkness, the thick clouds that will shroud that which is most holy. And we talked about the great paradox last week that in this heinous act of evil that God is accomplishing his man, most glorious purpose in reconciling sinners to himself, it is appropriate that there be darkness on uh, this day. For those of us that were here on Wednesday night, we talked through the book of Zephaniah. Now, most of you don't know where to find that and never heard of Zephaniah, and I understand that. But in the book of Zephaniah, there's this phrase, the day of the Lord. It's a fascinating phrase. If you're looking for a Bible study this week, that would be a good one. Go study the day of the Lord. And Amos, maybe, or Joel first introduces this thing called the day of the Lord. It's referred to often throughout the Old Testament. And even the New Testament authors pick up on this phrase. And certainly for the old covenant people, they understood it was a day that God was going to come and punish them for their disobedience. And it occurred at least on two different occasions. When that northern kingdom fell to Assyria and when that southern kingdom fell to Babylon. It was rightly called the day of the Lord, a day of God's judgment, a day of God's justice. But also in that day of justice and judgment, there was God fulfilling a promise to save a remnant. It is interesting, the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost uses this same phrase as he quotes from the prophet Joel and saying what Joel was talking about, y'all just saw it happen. You're in the middle of it. 
And I want you to understand this thing. I think it's very important for us. I believe there is a future day of the Lord yet to come. There is a day when God will demonstrate his righteous judgment and his justice upon the unbelieving world. And that's a terrible thing, and it's a frightening thing at some level. But let me tell you the good news. For those who know Jesus Christ, our day of the Lord, our just judgment, the right wrath of God was poured out in these hours on the cross upon the Lord Jesus for you and for me. And folks, that is good news. Now, I don't know exactly what the future holds. I have some suspicions and some guesses and some, some form, informed ideas. But I do know this, that the wrath of God for those who believe was fulfilled in Christ. And I would offer this warning. If you're not in Christ, that day of the Lord awaits for you and all of God's wrath justly designated for you awaits you on that day. And so, in the darkness, we're told the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And I was trying to think about this. I'm told that the temple curtain was 30 by 30. Roughly, between these two doors to my right and to your left, that's about 30 feet from inside to inside, and to the very highest point in our ceiling would be about a 30 by 30 curtain. That thing was about an inch thick. Now, this was no shear, it was no voile. Now, that was said to impress you ladies that I know what a shear and a voile is, okay? I, I know what a festoon, a swag, and a jabbo is, okay? So, at any rate, I sold them for 20 years. With this curtain, there's no telling how many hundreds of pounds that thing weighed, about an inch thick, 30 by 30, it was torn. Now, no man could have torn it from the bottom. Only God who started at the top. Now, this week we've had some work done in here. We had a gentleman, an electrician, come in and put in new, new lights. And he got this very, very sophisticated lift. I mean, I, I really wanted to get in and ride around the building a little bit, but I didn't. But it's still hard to get up 30 feet in the air in the year 2023 to do it safely. And, and so, again, that no man could have gotten to the top up there and torn that curtain. God tore that curtain, and he tore it for a particular reason, that for those who trust in Christ, the way into the inner sanctums of God, the way into the holy of holies, the way into the very presence of God has been opened through the person and work of Christ. I want you to turn back to the book of Hebrews for just a minute. We fail to appreciate the book of Hebrews many times because we really don't understand what went on in the Old Covenant. And because we don't understand what went on under the Old Covenant, we don't understand the greatness of the New Covenant and what Christ has accomplished for us. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews explains to us something of the significance of the torn curtain of the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. Now, he's been talking about the ultimate, the effective, the efficient sacrifice in the verses preceding 
Verse 19 of chapter 10 verse in, in, in the book of Hebrews. And that's why we get the therefore. In other words, I'm about to go tell you a little bit more about what I've already been telling you about. I'm about to give you some implications for what I've been talking about. So, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, it is said, and just think about the, the terrible wrath of God that was often displayed under the old covenant. Think Go back and look up Nadab and Abihu, who were destroyed by fire because of their uh, offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. God killed them. They dropped dead. And I'm told every high priest was just a little shaky on that Day of Atonement when he would go in, not sure that God would receive the sacrifice, that, that their repentance would be such that God would receive. But now, because of the blood of Christ, we, the believer, enter that holy place with confidence because of the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we see these exhortations. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Isn't that a great, let us draw near. It's no longer stand back when, when God inaugurated that old covenant. Moses, you tell those people to stay away, I'll kill them. If they come near, I'll kill them. Now, through the blood of Jesus, come near, draw near, come to me. Enjoy the greatness of my glorious presence. Not because of your goodness, but because of the accomplishment of my son, Jesus Christ. Second exhortation, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It's a great thing about singing these songs this morning. I hope you sung them robustly. As Gomer Powell once said, said sing them from your diaphragm. Right? Y'all remember that? Okay. Yeah. Sing them with gusto. Sing them like you believe them. Sing them like they're true and they've been applied to your life. Let us hold fast these confessions. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. And then a negative, what? There it is. Not neglecting to meet together. And encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. We live in a discouraging day. Now, we shouldn't neglect because God said don't neglect. So you don't get an opinion in that matter, okay? Just, just in case you're wondering, you really don't have an opinion. God says not to neglect, so we shouldn't neglect, okay? But, but there's a real practical thing. And, and if I could tie it to this business in 2 Corinthians 3, we're told that when Moses would encounter God in the tent of meeting, that when he came out, the people say, hey, cover your face. Because that encounter with God has made your face glow with the reflected glory of God. And then Paul goes on to explain, now we meet together with unveiled faces. Because we've all come into this presence of God. We've come with confidence into his presence. And we're being transformed. And so when we gather together, we enjoy the re great reality of the privilege of being in the presence of God. And we see on each other's face this great reality that indeed we're being transformed. As the praise song goes, we see glory on each face. We see glory. And, and here's the thing. 
I experienced the reality of my physical demise, that I'm aging. And that's discouraging. I've told you that many times before. Just this week, I put a grandson in his big boy car seat. And then he told me I'm losing a tooth. And then, I mean, he'll be shaving and driving before I turn around. I'm getting old. And there's a great, you know, that's good, that's great, they should. But I look at the world, and I look at me, and I'm getting clumsier, and I'm getting weaker. My hair is getting grayer. All of those things. I did just have a face job. My face is looking a little better, but anyway, another subject for another day. But how we need to meet together, because not only do you need to say, I see something of the glorious transforming work of God in your life. Because Paul goes on to say in chapters 4 and 5 of that same book, 2 Corinthians, that outwardly, yes, indeed, we are wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed. And so we need to talk to each other about that. I see something in you. I see something in you. I've, I've known you for years, and I can see that you have genuinely been in the presence of God, and there's a transforming work. Indeed, yes, I saw some pictures of you the other day, and you're looking a little rougher than you did 5, 10, 20 years ago, right? Some of y'all say those kind of things. I would never say something like that to any of y'all. Didn't even say anything like that this morning, did I? But we speak to each other and encourage one another. I see that God has marked your life by the reality of what Christ has earned for us. And we need to talk to each other about that. And texting and talking on your cell phone is inadequate. We need to be here saying it face to face. That's why, at least one of the reasons. Do not neglect. Okay, we've got to move forward and quickly. All right, back to Luke. The veil is torn. The way is made. And Jesus breathes his last. One of the beautiful phrases to be found in the Bible, John records for us in this account of the crucifixion. The Greek is tetelestai. It is a perfect verb. One word that's translated into English, it. My work. That which I had agreed with the Father and the Spirit to do from all of eternity past, to come and to be the perfect man, and to succeed where Adam failed, and then to die in the place for all of those who failed in Adam. That work is finished. And it's a perfect verb, meaning the implications of what was finished continue until the day that Jesus returns. And so, he having been abandoned, having been forsaken, having experienced the wrath of God in our place, makes the great statement of faith. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you, Father. I came here to do your will. I die according to your good pleasure. And notice here, it's not a dying gasp. It is a loud, fully robust shout in that he is now doing what? Not having his life taken from him, but he is laying it down only to take it back up again as he has accomplished his purpose in the crucifixion. And so as he dies there, we find a mixed crowd making a mixed response. 
Assuredly, in verse 47, we see the centurion's confession. Surely, indeed, this man was innocent. Mark records that the centurion or a centurion says, truly this was the Son of God. It was noted last week by one of our, our young men. I, I, I just didn't hit me, but I thought, what? That's a good observation. That even at the cross, we see the implications, the worldwide implications of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ extending beyond the Jews. That we see a Gentile, a centurion, making a great confession of his confidence in this person, the Christ, whom he had just observed as dying. And so we see the centurion's confession. We see the crowd's consternation. They knew something was wrong, that something had gone sideways, that it was not right. But I'm not sure, they weren't sure what to make, about, make of it. Now, I believe, as we said last week, maybe they were a part of that 8,000 people in the first days of the church after Pentecost, that upon the preaching of the message of Pentecost and beyond and the power of the Holy Spirit, they got it. They understood what had happened there at Calvary. And so we see their consternation, and we see the associates of the Lord Jesus in their contemplation. They stood at the distance, paralyzed. <sighs> what just happened? What have we done? Who is this guy that we have loved and we've believed, and we have followed now for three years. And so in his death, Jesus, the second Adam, I think Brad mentioned it in his prayer, the second Adam suffers Adam's curse. If you'll remember back in Genesis 2.17, God told Adam, you're free to do everything and anything, eat all you want. Just There's this one tree in the middle of the garden, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it, and in the day you eat of it, in that day, you shall surely die. He did, he did, and we did, okay? He ate, he died, and we died in him. And the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, died to reverse that curse, to fulfill that curse. He died under the curse of death because of the rebellion of that first man, Adam. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He, made, he was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In his incarnation, he makes a full atonement that has been accepted by God, an atonement made on your behalf. And so Jesus dies on the cross. Let's look at his burial. Verse 50 through 56. You talk about a courageous faith. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, evidently a Pharisee, evidently in, in the inner circle on the council, we're told that he objected, that he didn't consent. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if he spoke out or if he just didn't vote for the condemnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, not sure. But for whatever reason, he did not consent to that, and he was looking, which gives me an indication he was actually an old covenant saint, more than likely. We've talked about those that, those that were regenerated prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came, and at great risk to his reputation, to his livelihood, 
to his relationships. He goes to Pilate. I want the body of that man you killed. I think it would be normative for the bodies of those crucified because of the reality, because of the, the curse that, that everybody would have agreed they were under, that those bodies would have been left there to rot on the cross. But here comes one, in claiming that body is making the confession, I'm going to identify with him. And maybe even beyond that, Pilate and your Jewish co-conspirators, you murdered an innocent man. Whatever the motivations, Joseph goes along with Nicodemus. It's interesting, John tells us Nicodemus went. The one that came to Jesus by night. You remember Nicodemus? Jesus told him what? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In a bloodied and crucified Savior. Nicodemus saw the king, and he saw the kingdom, because I believe he was born again. And so they go, and they prepare initially the body, and they take it to the tomb, this borrowed tomb, fulfilling uh, Isaiah's prophecy that he would uh, uh, be with a rich man in, in death. And so he's placed in the rich man's uh, tomb. He is left there. The tomb is sealed with the stone. That burial party, they return to their homes. They think that they will prepare for the final embalming, the final preparation of the body, and they rest according to the commandment. And it is interesting that these gospel writers often talk about the obedience to the law when the greatest violation of the law was taking place the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, in obedience to the law, they observe that final Sabbath under the old covenant, and they would forever have a different perspective on the when and the where and the how to worship God. Chapter 24, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. One of the things that's hard to create because y'all know so much is y'all know the end of the story. And it's hard to create the drama. Uh, one of the really neat things about a Good Friday service is you, you ask people to leave that service in a sober, somber, a, a mood of grieving as those first disciples left the tomb, grieving the loss of the one they loved. And that's hard to create because we know the end of the story. I, I was reflecting this morning, there's an old song that used to be sung, and the refrain is, Then came the morning, indeed, then came that first resurrection morning. And I've told you before there in verse 1, on Sunday, the first day of the week, they, they referring to the women, went to the tomb. Where are those disciples? Even if everybody abandoned you, Jesus, I'm your man. I'll be right there with you all the way to the end. You can't find him anywhere. I mean, he's under the bed, shaking. Yeah. And the women. Very embarrassing report, actually. For it to, be, to, for it to make it in the Bible means it's true. 
that they would tell something like that would only be told because it's true which tells us something else about our confidence in the Word of God, that it's true. It doesn't sugarcoat the facts. These guys had quit. They, 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 they were just so scared they couldn't show their faces. And these women, out of love and compassion, they went. Of course, the interesting thing, they had the right attitude, certainly. But they went to the wrong place. Oh, I don't mean they went to the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong place because Jesus wasn't there. He had been raised. They had the wrong presuppositions. They thought they were going to do what? To anoint a dead body. They had uh, used their money to buy the things to embalm him because Jesus was dead. They saw him put in a tomb. They saw it sealed up. They were going with the right attitude, but for the wrong reason. But because they had the right attitude, even though they had the wrong reason, even because they were faithful, to the Lord. They were the first witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so those women arrive and the stone is rolled away. And it's, I guess it's a cliche, but it's true. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let those witnesses in so they could verify that Jesus was gone. And of course, they began to receive some I guess you'd call it dawning clarity because we're told that two men begin to speak to them. Other accounts speak of their dazzling apparel. The assumption is what? These were angels. These were angels. They were, they were glorious. And in a sense, they, they overwhelmed the women. But we find their message there in verse 5 of chapter 24. They were frightened because they were glorious beings. They bowed their faces to the ground and they're asked the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you doing here in a cemetery? A cemetery is for dead people. That's where, you, that's where you take dead people and you leave them there. Why are you doing here? He is not here. You're at the wrong place. But has risen. He has risen. He's alive. He has defeated death. His sacrifice has been accepted. And then they say to him, said, remember? Isn't that a, what a great word. What a great word. There's, there's very little new information that I need to give most of y'all here. What do we need to say? Remember? You remember? You remember Jesus crucified and raised from the dead? Remember when things get tough, when life seems to be at its lowest ebb? Remember? There's an empty tomb. There's a resurrected Savior. There's a glorified Lord. There's a returning King. And so the women go, I remember. He told us that, didn't he? He did. He told us that. And so they run. Now other accounts tell us some different things. Now folks, the gospel, the Word of God never contradicts itself. It only complements, okay? And I'm not going to try to reconcile all the different ways, uh, but most likely Jesus appeared to them as they were leaving, and they go back, and they report to the disciples. And, and Luke says the, the report seemed as idle words. The, the, the word is liros in Greek, and it's where we get the word delirious. The disciples thought those women had lost their minds. I mean, you just can't shake up a bunch of men, can you? I mean, you, you just can't shake them out of their stupor. Uh, it's, it's amazing. 
Absolutely amazing. They go, and they, they should have gone, oh, yeah, we remember too. But they're like, oh, come on. These women, they had to go to the wrong place. or Who, who, yeah, who knows what they've been up to? And we're told that Peter runs to the tomb, and he looks in. He sees the empty tomb. He sees the, the abandoned linen cloths, and he leaves still trying to figure it all out. And, of course, we know the rest of the story, that the Lord does appear to these disciples. And they are convinced. And they spend the rest of their life proclaiming the truth, the reality, the historical fact that this man that they lived with, that they followed for three years, was crucified by a conspiracy of Jew and Gentile, but yet that was God's plan to place him on the cross. In that cross, or on that cross, he would atone for our sins, and we can proclaim to you forgiveness of sins, and we know it to be true because we saw it happen, and God raised him from the dead. Now, again, some of your high-minded liberal friends will talk about the fact, well, he just wasn't dead. You know, they got him down, and he, he kind of revived in the... Come on. Come on. Really? The Roman centurions let Jesus off the cross alive? The disciples stole the body. Some of you have seen the little Babylon Bee spoof about somebody coming out. Hey, let's go steal the body of Jesus. Well, what are we going to get out of it? Well, you're going to get killed for it. So they maintained that lying conspiracy for the balance of their life and died because of it. Don't think so. Oh, his enemies stole the body. Well, all you got to do is pop up with the body one day and the whole thing goes to dust. No, 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 no. Jesus died in atonement for our sin. And God raised him from the grave. So let us enter. Let us encourage. Let us not neglect. In the context of what the writer of Hebrews says about the realities of what Christ accomplished, in verse 1026 it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He goes on to ask, how can we neglect such a great salvation? Now, here's the thing. We've talked about this a lot. For the most part, you're not going to have to convince people Jesus was the Son of God, that he died and was raised from death. For the most part, most people say, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. The problem is convincing people, they are neglecting the realities and the implication that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected and returning Son of God. They are neglecting. And the writer of Hebrews says it this way. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? Oh, whoa. In other words, if God was serious about sin under the old covenant, for those of us that know the truth about the glory of the crucified and resurrected Christ, and we live our lives in neglect of that, how much more terrible should the judgment be for neglecting those great truths, those great realities? The way is open. The veil has been torn. And we may enter with confidence because of 
the accomplishment of Christ through that veil which is his flesh. And here's my prayer. The writer of Hebrews says this, the end of chapter 10. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve, or we persevere to the preservation of our souls. That is our hope for each one of us gathered here that we continue, that we do not neglect, that we do not fail to gather, and that we encourage one another in a difficult world. I want to say to you, there is encouragement because he wasn't there. He has risen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the truth, for the great historical realities that we serve a risen Savior. And he accomplished that which we needed. He accomplished the atonement for our sin. God, I doubt that there's anyone here that would argue with me that what I've said is not true. I doubt that anyone would say, no, 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 none, none of that happened. That's all a legend. It's a myth. Somebody made, everybody here would agree these things are true. But, oh, God, may none of us, may none of us ever neglect to live in light of the implications of that which was accomplished by our resurrected Savior. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.